People seem to forget, if you change today, today will change your life. Hello, Michael. How are you doing? I'm doing great, David. It's nice Excellent. to talk to you. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being here. And just for, you know, we were just talking beforehand. I think it's just appropriate to ask you with all the stuff going on in the world and the pandemic, just checking in that you're, you're okay. And how, how are you keeping yourself entertained at the moment? Well, uh, the, uh, I'm having, <coughs> excuse me, Zoom meetings all the time. Tomorrow yeah. morning, I have a Zoom meeting with two great friends. Great. I'm also preparing for a virtual workshop with Ashland University uh, on my book and, mm -hmm. and my concepts. And so that kind of gives me some structure, and, uh, the, uh, which is good. So I'm having Zoom meetings with my kids and, and things like that. Uh, so it tries to have some normalcy. The only thing that I'm really, really missing mm -hmm is tennis you know yes. really avid tennis player average player and and i just uh, that is i'm having withdrawal symptoms uh, on, on tennis so i think next week the tennis courts are going to be opening so i think i might be able to start playing next week so right well what um, and what are the symptoms what are the main symptoms of tennis withdrawal well, you know, it's, uh, I don't get the trash talk very much anymore, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, and, and also just a social interaction. I play with a bunch of retired guys and, and we just have so much fun and it's just, and I play early in the morning. It's such a good way to start the day. I play at seven o'clock in the morning, mm -hmm. you know, for a couple hours with a bunch of guys. Then we sometimes will go out for breakfast. So there's a social aspect to it and a, and a fun aspect to it. And it's yeah. great cardio. It's great exercise. Yeah. So. Perfect. Well, I, you know, I'm glad to hear that you're uh, you're doing well. Otherwise, and, and hopefully uh, you'll uh, get back on the court very soon as well. And so, it, it's a real pleasure to have you, Michael. And um, for the people listening, just so they can get a, a good idea for people who might not be aware of your work, um, are you happy to just tell us a little bit more about yourself, Michael, and the work sure. that you do? Um, well, a long time ago, I, I graduated from Ohio State and have a degree in industrial engineering. Mm -hmm. Um, I worked for oh, almost 10 years in industry, uh, learning my craft, and then I got into engineering management. Uh, and I, one thing I find that uh, I come from a working class family, and I really enjoyed the people out on the floor, you know. And I think when I, the first company I went with was, in many ways, a very good company, but very traditional management type of thing. Mm -hmm. And I really found the people out there, first thing I enjoyed their directness and, and, uh, the uh, and I saw they had so much creativity <clears throat> and early on in my career I said these people have such creative hobbies if we could help them really see that in their job and giving opportunities their job how much better it would be for them but mostly for the company you yeah. know quite yeah. frankly because I find they're very bright people mm -hmm. just because they didn't have the level of education they did have the education but it wasn't formal education you know so and I really had a great affection for people out on the planet, because those are the people I grew up, they raised me, you know, those are the type mm -hmm. of people, that's the family I came from. So I did that for a number of years. I, I found out, I told people, I made a career decision by, by accident. <laughs> now, when I was in high school, if you were a good student, particularly if you're good in math and science, they said you should go into engineering. Mm -hmm. So I went into engineering, had no idea what it was all about. Mm -hmm. And then I found out, I really liked it and I was actually good at it, you know, and it was such a joy. <clears throat> and I, I can't tell you that I don't think I've ever had a really bad day at work. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> you know, I've had bad moments, <clears throat> but, but if you really uh, love what you do 
uh, I found that that's, that was great. So after a while, about 10 years in, into it, I said, you know, I'm ready to move on. And so uh, uh, I decided to go out of business for myself, working with companies. Mm -hmm. And the, the business evolved over the years. You know, it started off with doing a lot of management development, training and development, because that was uh, something I was interested in. And then I decided to um, uh, go back to school. Uh, and I went back, got my master's in industrial engineering and business. It was dual, kind of a dual master's. And um, then I went on to get my uh, doctorate in adult education with organizational communications and business as my minors. And so really it kind of rounded me out. And I think uh, it made a profound impact on my consulting business. So I went back and I integrated industrial engineering, process improvement, lean uh, with, with leadership and, and engagement. It all fit together for me, you know, and, and my business grew and I and it really worked into my primary sweet spot was closely held companies between 10 and $100 million, uh, often owned by one or two people. And I found out that when someone asked me what my job was, the answer that came out to me was, I'm helping people deal, I'm helping organizations deal with the problems of success. I love that. Okay, I like that, yeah. Because what happened is, in the early entrepreneur stage, a lot of flexibility, trying things out, experimentation, not too much on process and things like that. Very strong leader very often who I really admired, you know, these entrepreneurs. But they hit a wall often because they were growing. They didn't know how to take it to the next level. And that's where I came in. So I came in sometimes with industrial engineering process analysis, but always got into executive team development because the strong controlling person didn't necessarily know how to build a leadership team. Mm -hmm. And so that really got me into the strategy issues in, in executive team development. And that, that, and so most of my career, but my biggest chunk of my career was doing that. I worked with bigger organizations and things like that. And I had a wide range of, of companies, but <clears throat> that was my sweet spot. Mm -hmm. And, and also I could speak, um, directly to the CEO because very often they don't have anyone telling them things you yes. know that they need to hear you know like one of the things when I'm first starting talking to a potential client I never tried to close the deal very fast because I want to make sure that it was a good fit mm -hmm. so the one question would help me figure out whether or not we're going to go on so I'd say David <clears throat> so if we start working together and you know I'll be starting off with an assessment and, and I kind of went through my process so what happens if I find out that you're a big part of the problem? How do you want me to deal with it? You know, and, and if they're a real thin skin, <laughs> yeah. uh, the meeting would end, <laughs> you know, but, but it always happens. They're always yeah. part of the problem. And I don't mean they're the blame, but they're just. Well, they're the, 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 the chokehold of any business, aren't they? Right. And, and I, and I find out that I needed to know. So we used to have a, um, uh, we used to work up this um, way that we're going to deal. Like if, if I'm in a room with them and their, their people, and sometimes I'd have a signal to them that they are going off track. So like this one guy, his president, his name was Randy, loved him, uh, pure entrepreneur. And so if I called him Randolph, <laughs> he knew that he just blew it, <laughs> you know? <laughs> 
you know and it's, and it's I, like I, being told off by your mum when you like they say your full name and like, <laughs> right. well, that's right. michael john michael you know? yeah exactly right you know and uh so uh and i really enjoyed that relationship uh with them and i found that most of them enjoyed it with me mm-hmm. and well, actually all of them did or they wouldn't have hired me yeah, you know yeah and and uh, because I think they knew I was in the best interest. And the other part was, they were not my clients. The business was my clients. Okay. They were a part yeah. of this. Good. Yeah. And and I think coaching is good, where people work with individuals for coaching, and I'm all for that. But I never considered myself that coach. It, it might be a part of it, but I was my my job was to look out for the best interest of the company and let them know that sort of thing mm. and uh so uh, and so i have a lot of energy around that and a lot of fun around that sort of thing so that was my big chunk of my work i love that and you gave a few examples of the sorts of things that i talk about with people in terms of how do you you know for me always it's a two-step process it's you firstly got to break someone's pattern. Once you break that pattern, then you they take better action. And without, you know, you got to break their pattern first. And I like the Randolph thing as well because I can imagine that would have instantly like jolted them out of their patterns. Go, oh yeah, well hang on, I've got to, I've got to switch on again. And and so I really like that. And so you made it at that point between you know, you're working in the interest of the business ahead of the the client, and, and as it's as, as sorry the client of the individual, and right. as it should be. Now, there must be examples or situations where you thought, because sometimes it might have been a, I don't want to say a moral or ethical thing, but you, where you look at an individual and you, you, want to, you want to provide them something of value, and it might not be mutually exclusive to the, to the benefit of the, the company, but you look at it and go, I really have to put the business interest first, even though I really I like this individual and I want them to succeed, but this might have to come first and this might com- say compromise them in some way. I mean, did you have situations, not, not necessarily that that was happening, but you felt that. And if that, if that was the case, how did you kind of, you know, deal with that? How did you always, rem- I guess in some cases you have to have an emotional connection with the individuals, but at some point you've got to remove that connection so that you're always back at the, principle of the business has to succeed so did you have examples of that and if so what were they like yeah well i i take it is the, the term you use that reminded me is compassionate detachment mm, i like that yeah that, that's that sometimes i had to w- make sure that i didn't allow my respect and affection for somebody to affect my good judgment mm-hmm. you know and and sometimes uh, and and so I care for them individually in a running a business, but sometimes they just need to hear things that they don't necessarily want to hear. Mm-hmm. I have one I have one situation. I was working with this one company, and we just finished the assessment period. You know, a couple three months, and we were ready to make a major uh, initiative with the organization. <clears throat> so we had an all hands meeting. <clears throat> so maybe about forty employees, mm-hmm. and and we we're and we we're. I was going through a job design to, to enrich the job of certain important uh, roles in a company. And uh, during the presentation, uh, the president of the company, who actually went to high school with me, oh, you know, right. okay. yeah. but we didn't really know each other real well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so he made a comment, because uh, we we're setting up a pilot project. He made a comment about one of the women in the group who was a key person in this pilot project that was highly inappropriate. Now, it wasn't so much a 
blatant sexist comments that we might see, but it was a joke that I could tell that really hurt her. Uh-huh. And I saw, and she just shut down. I could tell it. So we went on with the meeting. So after the meeting, I walk to the person's office, the CEO's office, open it up, and I said, are you open for some feedback? And that's always the sign, right? And he said, and, and of course, and I said, well, if you're not, well, I'll talk to yeah, you later. Yeah, yeah. Well, they can't help it. You know? yeah. so I go in, then I walked in his office, and the second sign was to shut the door. Yes, okay, yeah. <laughs> you're getting a picture. Yeah, yeah. So I said, uh, uh, Joe, it wasn't his name, Joe, uh, during that meeting, there's some things that really bothered me. You know, when you were saying to Sally, blah, 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 that really bothered her. And he said, then he argued with me. He said, yeah. oh, we kid all the time like that, blah, blah, blah. You know, I said, well, you know, I know a lot about group process and I know she was shut down. She didn't take that as a kid at all. Mm. So I hung in there with him, you know, and I said, you forget that she gets a check with your name on it and the name of the company on it. So you're not just pals, she's working for you, you know, mm. and that was inappropriate. And she's a major a, a player in this company. And I, I, I didn't leave that office until he accepted that. And to his great credit, he got up, walked out, and apologized to him. You know, yeah. good for him. Yeah. You know? and, and I think that was in the best interest, quite frankly, of the company, yeah. but it was based on an ethical principle. Mm. And when I do something like that, and I have several things I've done like that, I can't worry about losing the client. Because if I'm worrying about losing a client, I'm not going to do the right job. You know, mm-hmm. doesn't mean I'm not going to make mistakes. You know, and if I make a mistake, I, I admit to it. But, mm-hmm. but uh, I really think it was in the best interest of him and the client uh, and his company by doing that sort of thing. You know, mm-hmm. and I have a number of examples like that. And sometimes it's different type of stuff. That's really interesting, and, and you know, especially with the client, you know, business environment, business climate over the last. Uh, three or four years uh people who can i guess mediate those sorts of situations i think it's 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 must it's such an incredibly important thing at this time because you're right there's that that lack of self-awareness but that just as just a kind of a culture shift and you know with the example you gave and rightly we're hopefully trying to move in a in a more positive direction uh, where people are more aware that of those sorts of comments but um that actually people in the moment maybe they miss that sort of thing and i i had a i had an incident a situation a, a while back um a manager of mine so you know and and this was before i was even in coaching i was working in a corporate environment and with a manager we got on unbelievably well unbelievably well and uh but we hadn't known each other that long and i'm 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 part christian and part jewish Without going into the details of it, she she made a comment or a reference uh, to me being Jewish, which was, wasn't racist, but it, but there was so, there was something in it which wasn't quite right. Right. And I there was this thing where, and this is something I, I, it's, a, it's a moment that I took into me when I started to, when I got into coaching, which was that there's this thing here which is we get on, you know, better than anyone else in that company. And yet I know this is wrong. And I really thought about it in terms of what the right approach is here. And she hadn't been working with the company long. I knew she wasn't 
meaning any offense. I knew that she, it was a sort of spur of the moment thing. And I knew that, she, I certainly knew she wasn't racist or anything like that. But I really had to think about it because, you know, we were getting to a point where the, there's a lot of, a big microscope on what's happening within business. And it makes you therefore notice things more. Maybe 10 years earlier, I wouldn't have noticed that sort of thing. I would just, okay, you know, haha, whatever. Right. I was lucky enough that the next morning I saw in my inbox, she, she sent me a, an essay of an email saying that she'd, she'd caught herself and she can't be enough to sleep. And she realized that as, as, as sort of, it was a really nothing comment, but not appropriate either, but probably similar to what you're saying right. is that she recognized it. And that was, and that was enough for me and for people to have that level of self-awareness. And it's incredibly important, but it's not always easy to be that self-aware. And I always, you know, I get, a, a, well, whenever you probably same with you, whenever you work with a high performer, they judge themselves when they go, I can help everyone else, but I'm struggling right. to help myself. Correct. And oh, yeah. I always, and I, this is what I wanted to get onto next, which is I always try and tell people that, you know, when people, if people want to let go of something, they have to, you know, it has to let go. It has to come out of them. It has to let go. So you have to talk about things. You have to let that stuff out. So I just wanted to ask you, Michael, from your experience in terms of people's own self-awareness, obviously at the higher end of the business, they've got so much to think about that they can't possibly think about everything. In terms of helping people become a bit more self-aware and helping people almost analyze their own process because presumably they a business and individuals they've got to be able to work and operate in the same way beyond the work they do with you you won't be there forever with them so right. and you'll move on to other so how how do you help people with that kind of self-awareness at the top end of a business when they've got so much to do well uh, a couple of things yeah uh, one of the things i find that was important for uh, a business leader is to get connected with two different groups of people. Okay. The first one are their customers. Yeah. And I don't mean a sales call. So almost always when I'm working with a company, uh, one of the early things I do is I teach them how to go out and interview their customers okay. and, and have them ask four fundamental questions. You know, uh, the first question is, so, uh, what is our company doing well for you? How, would, how, do we, how are we creating value for you? What, what are we doing good? When, when they ask that question, they're not just finding out what they're doing well, but also they're finding out what the person values, mm -hmm. what they're paying attention to. Uh, second question, so what are your needs and expectations for us? <clears throat> Uh, and that, <clears throat> that's kind of the longest question. Then you kind of dig in deeper to each one of those. <clears throat> then they typically give you categories of things, technology, sales. <clears throat> then you take each one of those and you ask a question is, so <clears throat> tell me more about our technology support. How, you know, what does that look like? And mm. what would be, what would be a, a player? You know? um, then the last question is, so what can we do better? How can we improve our performance? We do that with all the customers. And then that's really important because that really is a big group of information for strategy. But then I have them do pretty much the same thing, particularly the president with his people. Mm -hmm. You know, what am I doing well? What are your expectations of me? You know, you know, how should I measure my performance? You know, what can I do better? 
And I find that, that I believe that the, the, the boss, whatever level that is, is not the customer of the employee. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, they are an account. They're important. They're an accountability issue. They bring integration. They bring all those things together. But unless we create value for external customer, we do not have the right to survive. You know, and so I had them treat their employees first as a customer. Mm -hmm. And so it, it takes away from the patriarchy of very traditional management. And and then to, I want them to keep in touch with them because they need to let their employees, their team members, um, feel it is okay and encourage them to give them feedback, honest feedback. And I find very often, especially if the organization grows, that middle management group sometimes filters out information to the yeah, top. Absolutely right. and, and I had this one client I worked with a number of years, matter of fact, it, he did something that was great to make sure that he was self-aware. Once a week, he would go, as a construction company, he would go to a crew and bring them lunch. And he said, the price of lunch is, I want you to give me an idea what I can do better to run this company. You know? And he did that with the crews. Then he did it with the teams inside. Uh, uh, he's a good friend. Uh, I, I admire him so much. Matter of fact, I even quoted him in my book, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, uh, th that sort of thing. I, one other example, yeah. <laughs> I was working with, um, a di big distribution company and I came in to do problem solving training. So I had my industrial journey hat on and, and we set up teams to work on specific projects. So I, when I do it in context, I don't just give a general thing. So I worked with them over about three months, these teams. And I would meet with the general manager, who's a great guy. And he, I remember early on, he said, you know, Michael, I have an open door policy, but people just never come up to talk to me. You know? And I said, uh, Fred, have you ever walked up to your office? Yeah, <laughs> Second floor, a long aisle, you open their office door, big mahogany desk. That would take an awful lot for these people to do that. So I said, I, first thing I really believed that he, he meant what he meant, said, I said, if you want them to talk to you, you're going to have to go to their area. And when you go to their area, and then, so that went on and didn't talk much more. Later on, about us closing out the, the project, he said, Michael, I found out what my job was. I said, that is great. What was it, Fred? He said, my job is remove barriers for, for people's performance. Yeah. So he'd walk around the shop area and he come up to a person who's running equipment or doing something like that and he said so what's an obstacle to your performance and what can i do to help you so i think it's encouraging people to give honest feedback which is critical you know and and to invite feedback and in saying what can i do better you know yeah and it, it helps them give a little mirror in front of them and start seeing themselves from a different point of view that's always valuable and mm -hmm. i think those are the types of things I find when leaders start to do that, they really become leaders. Yeah. And so, and, and that's that I, I first, I, I love those particular questions and those examples. And there's that thing about self-awareness, but there's also that bulletproof skin that you need. Right. right. Now I think part of, 
you know, if you do what is easy in life, your life will be hard, right? If you take, you know, so but the same process, right? You have to hear the feedback. You have to be self-aware. You have to go through those questions. You have to go through hearing all that stuff in order to build that skin and to be able, you know, to be able to deal with these things. And you have to go, same thing, going through the problems. Once you've got, you go through the problem, you've got the experience. However, you always want to do that market research and obviously do that market research on, your, on yourself and, and the value that you provide. How right. do you balance that off and how do you help people? Because I've got my own process of doing it with what, I, with what I do. How do you balance that off with helping people develop that, that thick skin that is required at top end of leadership, which is incredibly important because it's, it's, it's not for, for, for kind of mid-level management or anything else. You know, confidence is I might do this well or I might not at the top it's your survival you don't and that's the sort of thick skin without that sounding too dramatic but but you know people need to be confident in order to really perform at the highest level how do you help people deal with that both that that self-awareness and how you go about it but also keep them in a position to be well balanced and have that thick skin that's required yeah well um i i think there's i was just thinking about an example when you when you were talking um you know you know, certainly involvement uh, with groups uh, like I'm in a mastermind group with yeah. uh, with fellows, and we are we've been meeting for three and a half years, and we're now we're meeting virtually, and it is great because first thing we know that we really respect each other, and and can accept feedback. So you have to be with people that you respect that can give you honest feedback and invite that. Mm. But I also have found, uh, David, that in organizations, uh, there's two sides of this story too. It's, it's also helping their uh, team members or subordinates to be open to them. So they have a part in this too. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I'm always dealing with my struggle with, how do I help an uh, organization demonstrate good leadership and support with their people? But also, I never want to do that in such a way that I'm creating patriarchy you know, or dependence. You know, yeah. so, so uh, very often uh, when I would work with these companies, they would always say, anybody in the company can talk to Michael because <laughs> I'd help them with their learning plans and doing things like that. So there's a coaching element in there. <laughs> and very often they might start thinking, they know that I have a good relationship with the, the big guy, <laughs> you know, and so very often they'll be complaining to me about their boss. And really, sometimes they really want me to fix it, you know? Yeah. So I said, you know, I'm a, I hear what you're saying, and I think you got a lot of valid points, but unfortunately your boss is not in the room right now. Mm -hmm. So I can't fix your boss, but I can help you work with your boss. So it's really, how do you manage up? Um, I had this one situation. So part of it is getting courage to people to talk honestly to the boss. That's one part of it, you know? And uh, so if I, I always put a sign on the board, if I hear too much complaining, I said, no global whining, you know, you know, you have to claim the power that you have. I had, one of my biggest challenges working with the boss, he was a cardiologist in a hospital mm -hmm. and they're start, starting off this new health center. And I got started, I was able to help them in startup, which was fantastic. Right. And he didn't run the day-to-day -day operations, but because he was over a, a much bigger area, but he would have regular meetings with his staff, you know, and he was a very smart, highly controlling, not always highly self-aware, <laughs> you okay, know. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and 
So I realized, so he would have me sit in on these meetings even if I wasn't facilitating them. Mm-hmm. To protect him from himself. Okay, right, yeah. yeah. So I remember this one time, he had like six, seven people in the room, and we were working on a project, you know, and they, a, a really important project, and they'd work through things. Well, in the middle of the night, this guy woke up, came up with a different idea, he was very creative, came up, came into the meeting with a PowerPoint that completely was a whole different approach to this project, you know? And he said, and I could look at the team and who put so much energy into this, you know, and they were down and he was oblivious to it. He was oblivious to how they were reacting to him. He thought that he had the greatest idea. So, so he, so at the end of his presentation, he said, so what do you think of this? You know, he got this, yeah, that's a pretty good idea, Mike, and, you know, this whining type of stuff. So anyway, so that was, that's when I had to come in. So I said, you know, I'm hearing a lot of yes in this room, but I'm not feeling much yes. So what's going on here? Uh-huh, that's good way of putting it, yeah. And quiet for a while, and of course, you'll know, you never break the silence. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, yeah, sure. You never break the silence. So one person who was actually a doc, but not quite the same level as the big guy. He said, well, my, you know, uh, you know, we've been working on this for a while and you came in, I know you put a lot of work with it, but you kind of took the wind out of her sails. So he had courage, you know? Mm. And then finally another person said, yeah, this, and, and everyone, this got everyone started. Mike took that well, you know, you know? He was completely unaware. So partly I have to also help people mm to have courage, you know? So I've got to work with both ends, yeah. you know? And that's why I put a lot, I, I, the book I wrote, I wrote to the job holder, not to the boss. Yeah. yeah. And, and I don't mean it's for frontline people mm-hmm. because the boss is also a job holder, mm. you know? And so they just have different reporting relationships. So my ideal situation is to teach the tools as high as level as I can, mm-hmm. but they have to want it. I, I never force. Yes, absolutely. Never. You do have to want to, yeah. Matter of fact, sometimes when I teach these tools of self-management, the one rule I say is never require anyone to use them. <laughs> now you can require performance. You certainly yeah. should. But if, if, if you require them to do what Michael says you should be doing, then that is opposed to self-management. Yeah. So uh, give me the people who want it, not the people who need it. I, I, I really like that. So I, I, I really like the different ideas that you have in terms of, you know, the different level uh, coming from all the different angles in a business and, and being able to understand how we can perform our roles better. And I, I think the courage aspect of it is probably something that I think a lot of people might for, almost forget about when it comes to performance in a workplace and, and the bravery and the courage to do that. And your, your examples there are just perfect examples of just open communication my thing with communication is it's always one of two e's it's empathy or expectation right. it's always it's usually and, and and if you lead with empathy you you know you have to have expectation but if you lead with empathy it's a really easy way to encourage a warmer conversation and i think those examples are perfect examples of that i wanted to get into talking about uh, your book owning your own career and i just want to talk about that one particular uh, just briefly because I can say for anyone, you know, and lots of people listening to this from a kind of entrepreneurship point of view, um, or not an entrepreneur, they, they, they just want to take more control. It, it really resonates with me because 
I want to, I didn't want to start a business, but I wanted to own my life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that was really important to me. And I think, you know, you don't have to start a business to own your life, but that concept of owning your life is incredibly important to me. Right. I want to ask you, do you believe anyone and everyone can own their own life? Because there are lots of sort of things within a, you know, if you are working within a business and anything, there are certain strings in place. There are certain structures and things like that. Even working your own business, there are certain requirements. So what's your view in terms of anyone being able to own their life in that way? Because I think lots of people want to do that. Yeah, good question. It's a question I get a lot. Um, So I have found working with companies in terms of Mm self-management and owning their job, and uh, what they're in is I think a vast majority of people have the capability to, to take charge. Not necessarily, they may not be ready (laughs) (laughs) or may have, uh, may have some uh, uh, blocks in the way. Uh, I did some research on my master's thesis, uh, which has helped me a lot because it was very practical research. It was a long time ago. I did, uh, I, I had a course, it was kind of a precursor to my book. Mm-hmm. And I was teaching people how to set goals and manage their time in, in the workplace. And, and I would do this course, it was like a five week course, two hours a week and, and show them tools. I'm very tool oriented you know, how to do it. And, and some people would come out of that w- workshop or that series of sessions. This is the greatest thing since sliced bread. This is changing my life, you know, all that sort of thing which is great for the person here, right? Mm-hmm. Then some people came out completely frustrated. Yeah. And so I was saying, so my first course, one of the first semester I took in my master's program, I was looking at job design and things like that. And a lot of times people get this down to individual characteristics. Well, I said, hmm. And I looked at people who, who were having problems with it versus the people who weren't. And I said, they, it looks like their job is different. So I did some research, and I won't go into detail on it, on it but I did get my thesis approved. Mm-hmm. And, and I looked, I identified a number of job characteristics based on some previous research, I didn't develop these, that correlated with people's ability to self-manage. Mm, okay. Now, one of them is, uh, there's three major ones. Mm-hmm. One is task significance. Basically is, what I do really counts. There's something in here, I'm, I'm creating value for somebody, mm-hmm. you know? either in or outside the organization. If that's high, that's a good sign. The second thing is autonomy. Autonomy is, is, is not so much you always have autonomy of the goals, but you have autonomy in how you do your work. How, yeah. yeah. How you do your work. And, and it turned out that relatively high autonomy is good, uh, but not necessarily absolute autonomy. <laughs> then the third thing, was uh, feedback and i'm not talking about personal feedback feedback that the job itself gives you yes okay yeah and, and so for example a, a craftsman gets automatic feedback because they see what when, when it's going well and not going well i have a friend who's an artist you know he's a wonderful artist he doesn't need someone giving him a, a performance appraisal you know on how well he did he knows it when he makes a mistake and when he does something well when those three things mesh, uh, where task significance is high and feedback and autonomy is moderately high, because mm-hmm. you can have too much of both, mm-hmm. 
then I found out that highly correlated the job itself with ability to do that. So when I go into an organization, I very often I'll run this, you know, now I only give people individual feedback on that one, but I kind of coach them on whether or not that's maybe a good thing for them. Mm. And it doesn't mean I won't work with them, but it'd be a different set of tools, you know, maybe a more short-term goal setting as opposed to long-term goal setting, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but there was an individual characteristic that came out also was internal growth need. And what that is, is how much um, growth that they want out of their job. If a person has a lower growth need on their job, it does not mean they're not motivated. There might be other things, family issues, might be going to school or things like that. Mm. Doesn't mean they're not a good worker, but it just means they don't, that, that's not, doesn't keep them up at night, right? Yeah. And, and so, so when, that's, when those three things are high, that's the sweet spot, you know? <laughs> And so I typically will have run that. And if, if, if they're low, I might work with management and saying, is this really what you want out of this job? You know, and sometimes we'll go into a job design process before we go into this. Mm. We might, how can we increase the autonomy of this job and still meet, meet the needs of the company? You know? mm. And, and I, I just, one of your blogs, um, I remember reading one of your blogs, which said, uh, titled don't wait for the promotion create your ideal job right and so i assume you're sort of touching on that a little bit now in terms of i think there's always that thing which is you know if anyone's ever stuck in in their life it's it's, it's two parts it's either life doesn't match the blueprint of how they think it should be right or they feel uh, and they feel like they don't have the control to change it correct and so i always think with those two things is either we show how you've got some control or we just swap out the old plan for a, a new plan, which is so much better we go screw the old plan. Right. Now, when you're creating your ideal job, obviously you, there's a, probably a bit of both in there, isn't there? There's actually showing, well, you actually have more, you know, you tap into the autonomy aspect. You have a bit more control to cultivate and create the type of job that you want, that you're already doing, mm -hmm. or that there's a new plan and the new plan could be a new job or the new plan could be actually, the plan is, this is what your job is really about and getting an understanding. And I think a lot of managers probably look and say, actually, I, I, want, I want to tell them the why and the what, but I want them to do the how. And if they're really good at using their, having their autonomy to do the how, uh, then they can make their job what they want. So in terms of creating your ideal job, what else would you say to that, Michael, in terms of how someone sat where they are, maybe they're, you know, they're working from home at the moment and they're thinking this job is just not quite giving me those things that you spoke about in terms of task significance, autonomy, feedback, all of those things. Yes, they're going to need support from the business to help make those things happen. But how can someone create their ideal job right now where, where they're sat, they actually feel better about the work that they're doing. What can they do? Well, the, the first thing I have them do, one thing I tell people that when I teach them how to use the tools of self-management, I always say everything I'm going to teach you, you can do without permission. Hmm. Yeah. Now, it may or may not work, but you can do it without permission. So the, 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 one of the first things that create your ideal job is I had them uh, create a performance agreement with their organization. And that's much different than a job description. Mm -hmm. Job description helps, you know, the company see what type of person you hire. But, you know, once a person's hired, I'm sure they don't read their job description very much, mm -hmm. you know. So what I do with them is doing two things. First thing is... You want to have some self-awareness, right? About sometimes people think they they can be this or and that maybe it doesn't fit their their skill set. Yeah. You know, so uh, two things I do 
is one thing is I have them do uh, a discovery of their talents, their strengths, and their passions. And I have a number of exercises. Some of them I've created, but a lot of them are out there, you know, Dif different tools. And saying, I want them to have a great self-awareness of their strengths and their limitations, but mostly strengths, you know? And, and so that they, so their idea, their ideal job fits reality for them. And so I have to do a, a good self-assessment, you know? Uh, and I give them choices to pick out things, you know? And very often, uh, so that's a start. The second thing I have them do is to identify their key work relationships, you know? People who they serve, they provide product or service to, you know? People who provide service to them or teammates that they work with. And I have them interview them and what do you think the questions I ask? The same four questions I mentioned mm -hmm. to you before. Yeah, yeah. Same four questions. What am I doing well? You know, uh, and, and I say, what's working? And I never have them ask the question of what's not working. Not a very good question. Because right. it's a pastor oriented. Yeah. However, when we get to, so what am I doing well? What's working? What are your needs and expectations for me in my position as accountant? Mm -hmm. you know? Uh, what are the uh, ways I can me <clears throat> excuse me measure my performance? And the the last one is what can I do better? Mm. You know, when you ask that question last, and and out of those things, we take all the those two sets of information. I can show them how to create a, uh, their job, their ideal job. Mm. Now they still can't do it. They, then they go and negotiate it with the organization. Sure. Here's what I think I can do. And, and, and then negotiate back and forth. <clears throat> and very often they, they might find they can create their ideal job in their current job, <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, what, I what I really like about that approach genuinely is that uh, one of the things that drives me mad is the amount of people who come to, to, to talk about working with me and I ask them what's their experience in terms of seeking help elsewhere and they'll have maybe spoken to this person this person this person and the number one thing that i always seem to find is that they've spent a lot of time with someone else talking about what they don't want mm. i don't want to feel this way i don't want this to happen i don't want to uh have this conversation i and and then that this you know it's fine that that that's the survival brain isn't it we talk about what we don't want right but for the person who's kind of facilitating or coaching them or whatever is to is to fully function and deal on that problem now you have to help people overcome things but a very very simple way to transform someone and get them to pause in their tracks if you get someone who's a, a rambler or talks a lot or moans a lot or or you know you know whatever and they're just a lot of negativity coming out of them very simple way to get you know to make them quiet is to ask them what do you want right, right. and then all right. of a sudden because they're because and it's you know it's no judgment on the on the um client per se because it, again that's just how our brain is designed to look for what's wrong and where do we need to improve and what's you know how do i keep myself safe and all of those sorts of things i love your approach because it's very much focusing on what you do want and right. that, and, and it, I always talk about it as a, you know, having a picture, a picture frame up on the wall of what you do want. And there's only one nail that holds that picture frame up. And usually for me, that nail is feeling good enough. Right. right. And that, that one nail and people, it'd be, you know, people, it'd be ridiculous to try and keep that picture and um, hit that hammer, sorry, hit the nail 
on the head with a hammer by randomly throwing the hammer at the, towards the picture, hoping you hit that nail, hoping that you keep the picture up. I think for most people, that picture, we've not hit the nail on the head, the picture's fallen on the floor out of our line of sight. And if you don't focus on what you want, you immediately focus on what, uh, if you don't focus on what you want, you immediately focus on what you don't want. Correct. I love that approach in terms of creating your ideal job, not by ripping out what doesn't work and what isn't this, and, but very much, yeah, you've got to have an understanding of where we need to improve, but understanding, well, what is it you do want? Because most people just don't seem to know the answer to that question. I don't know how you and found that. In that improvement question, it's not necessarily what am I doing wrong that yeah, I can, yeah. how can I leverage a strength? You know, I, I talk to people about what do you really, I, I have one of the, tools that I've used. I think I created. I'm not sure. <laughs> I have people write success stories. Tell me about a situation that yeah. you, were, you were very successful in and it doesn't have to be work anytime, anytime in your life. And then I have them do that on, and just keep writing, you know, and write them in third person and just have there and then take a look at it and say, well, so what are some of the common themes you're seeing coming out of this? You know, yeah. and every time I was successful, I had great organizational skills or I had, you know, interpersonal skills yeah. or technical skills and, and it's all good. And, and I find that overcoming weaknesses is a big waste of time. Most of the time. Mm. Now, and I don't even like to use the word weakness because it has a certain moral kind of, you know, yeah. so I use the word limitations. What are my limitations? You know, like uh, after you and I talk, I'm a friend of mine, uh, I'm doing a virtual workshop and, and I, I need to learn a lot about technology. We've been doing videos and things mm -hmm. like that. He's a whiz at that, you know, and he can walk me through it. It would take me 10 years to do what he's helped me to do in a few days. Right. Yeah. And, 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 uh, and knowing that I can be that to somebody else and they to me mm. is, is one of the great gifts of, of real true friendship in terms of doing that because he's doing it just because he cares what I'm doing, you know, and I would do anything for him too. Yeah. And, and I think uh, over identifying limitations, but not trying to overcome things that you can't, you know, yeah. you know, I'll never be, I, I love tennis, but you'll never see me at Wimbledon. Okay. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, even in my best days, you know, <laughs> no, you will see me there. I did go to Wimbledon once as, yeah, as to watch it. You'll see me there as a fan, but never as a player. Yeah. No amount of time is going to make that change, you know. Yeah. And and it's I, I totally agree. And there's no point, you know. You have to when it comes to things like fear and everything and doubt and everything. You have you can't. It's like nature. You can't fight nature. Right? Nature just wins. It does win. And right. with those things, you have to work with those things. But once you become sort of become friendly with it, and I always the the sort of the the limbic which is where you have your sort of what might be referred to as your irrational thought process i always get people to kind of identify that as a as a as a separate almost a separate object in terms of you know if it's they can associate it with their what their favorite toy was when they were young or something anything along those lines that allows them to kind of not see it as non-threatening and something right. to work with and uh, I, so i i really really like that approach and what i want to ask is collating a lot of this stuff together is your your kind of models for leadership i want to it's a slightly tough question i want to ask because you get so many different types of leaders right you get the leaders that um they lead by how they perform you get the leaders who are great at delegation uh you get leaders who are very much on the ground you get lead, all these different types of leaders so from your own perception your own belief in terms of the things that you've created and also the experiences and things that you've learned um do you think these models work for all types of leaders 
or do you think it works better for some types of leadership? What's your what's your thought process on that? You mean, you mean kind of a leadership style type of thing? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I no, I, I do believe in situational leadership. You know, yeah. um, as a young manager, I made a big big mistake. You know, I'd read all of Maslow's and and yeah. hierarchy yeah. and and all the 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 leadership principles, and and so I had this a team of engineers and technicians. I took a, I took it over at this department from a person who was let go. He was terrible, you know, and uh, and they hired me, and so I gave a high degree of freedom to people, thinking that they could handle it. And I had this one young man who just ate it up and spit it out. He his performance just popped up. Mm. I had another one, a young man who. His only career was under a uh, authoritarian boss who wouldn't let him do anything, right. and and uh, and and actually also gave him some bad habits, and he couldn't handle it of that, and I ended up I had to fire him after a while, mm. and I made a big mistake thinking that I should treat everybody the same. Mm. Now you treat everyone fairly. And ethically, obviously, yeah. but in terms, of, he was not capable. Now, the best thing I did with him about a few weeks before we let him go, and I had a meet, I had this face-to-face -face meeting, and I said, <clears throat> "You know, Pete, you're really not doing it, <clears throat> and I've been trying to coach you a little bit, and you're not doing that. Uh, doesn't look like you're going to make it here, and but I'm going to give you a certain amount of time. Mm -hmm. And uh, but I have to tell you, uh, unless you make a dramatic improvement." You're probably not going to make it. Well, the good news was he started looking for a job. So by the time he didn't make it, I had to let him go. Yeah. And, and, and I probably did him a favor, but that, that was a big mistake by me, treating everyone right. the same. I, uh, yeah. I think there's certain principles of how you treat people and authenticity and things like that. Mm. But people are in different levels of readiness to, uh, and some, some situations also require a more directive leader, you know? Mm. I, 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 and sorry, go on. Go ahead, no, and 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 so, but to, to me, uh, what the mistake I made with that young man was helping him grow to being more self-managed, but taking it one step at a time. And I had to be a bit more directive with with him than I had other people, giving him uh, more feedback and maybe even some tough love at times. You know that uh, it's not as comfortable for me to do that sort of thing. But I I learned a lot. I think you have a very. It sounds like you mentioned Maslow's hierarchy needs. I think you've probably got a very similar approach you know it sounds like your approach has changed over time which is always great but um my my approach would be very much the same i, I love to find those uh, commonalities between every human being on earth so maslow's hierarchy of needs is one of those things which it helps you explain every everybody on earth and i'm always i've always been of that type where i, I want to know the pattern so that if i can narrow it down to the i'm only looking for you know a handful of patterns then it's going to be one of these i can help someone quicker right. As much as I love all of that, I totally appreciate what you've just said, which is that actually from experience, you have to understand that whilst these are models and whilst, you know, something like Maslow's hierarchy of needs is held in, you know, it's been almost, almost by this point sort of mythologized and is, you know, almost made bigger than it probably was at the time type of thing. And people really sort of lean into it and fall into it. It's understanding that actually nothing beats the kind of experience of realizing you can't as good as these models might be, you can't put everyone in similar boxes. You have right. to understand that 
just because this model looks really good and helps in a lot of ways, maybe it doesn't answer everyone's problem. And you can't use Maslow's hierarchy of needs to explain every single thing, or this model, or this model, this model. You can definitely, what I love to do is get all of these things together and cross-reference them. And then a bit like what you said earlier about success in terms of write down what your success was in this moment, in this moment, in this moment, and then find what the common threads are. I, I do exactly the same thing. There, these success gives you answers. And it's always a shame for, I, I think it's, one of the things that drives me mad about business is how poor post analysis or reviews of projects or things, how poor that can be because yeah. it's, and it's usually a time constraint reason. It's, oh, we've got to get on to the next thing. But <clears throat> if you want to save yourself time for when you do this again in a year's time to spend though that week or those days or whatever to create this post analysis, I think it's incredibly important. Same thing for an individual success is to go, well, where have you been really good? What are the three things you do in all of these things? And there you go. And I, I just think that's the approach you have to take with things rather than trying to imprint a model or a process is, well, what does work for you? Okay, that's what works for you. Look, it works every, every time you do these things. So there we go. And don't use them. So I, I really, I, I like that you've said, actually, I had an approach. I loved all of this stuff, but I had to recognize that also I had to blend what I do with with experience and what other things that I do as well. Just a few more things. And it's just because of all the research I've got that I'm reading, so many different sorts of questions. So maybe it's a case of having you back back on again at another point. But I really wanted to get on to fight. You know, you put a blog on fighting a lot of fires. Sorry, basically a question saying fighting a lot of fires, you may be the arsonist. And I just, I guess, really to ask you, what are some of the things that people may do that, you know, create or even magnify a crisis? Yeah, interesting. The first article I wrote on that years ago, a business paper asked me to write one on conflict or crisis management. Mm -hmm. I don't know why. And I said, I'd rather talk about crisis prevention, Mm -hmm. you know, and and the premise is that we, we, we create most of our own crises. My crisis today is often the result of a bad decision I made before. You know. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. And, and so, so one of the things is uh, sometimes we make um, unrealistic expectations. You know, commitments. You know, so so if everything goes perfectly, you know, then this is the way it's going to be. And so when we when we do that, either by pressure from the boss or pressure from a customer, and we kind of give in to that sort of thing, we're setting up, we're, we're putting kindling down there for the fire to start, right? You know? So that's one thing. And, and the one story I tell, I had this one engineer working for me who was a very good golfer. He's an OSU golf team. We, I, may, I maybe was at best a bogey golfer. And we were playing one day around the golf and I hit this ball and it was a little bit on the right side of the fairways, dog gate right. And I pick up my club and, and he looked at me and he said, what are you doing, Michael? I said, well, if I just hit that ball underneath those limbs and it fades a little bit over the water, I can hit the green. He said, you know, I'm a pretty good golfer. I would never try that shot. You know, you're probably gonna hit in the woods or in the water, you're gonna get a seven or eight, you know? Mm-hmm. Just take your wedge and hit it out there, take a stroke, you know? So partly is making unreleased expectations, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. And basically they're on best, best, best case scenarios, you know? Uh, so that's one way that we, we, uh, we create our fire. Uh, the other one is, is a lack of communication. It's a crisis because of the time. So 
part of the thing on crisis management is as soon as it looks like something's not going to go right, that's when we got to communicate. So I'll talk to David. I said, David, I know I was going to get this report to you. I ran into some things and I was supposed to get to you by, by uh, next Wednesday. Uh, I don't think I'm not going to make it, you know? So I tell you before the fact, yeah. at that point there, we can negotiate. You can maybe jump in to help me, you know? Or you say, you know, I really, we could put it back two days, you know? So part of that is open communication about your own performance, uh, no spinning, no blaming, you know? It, performance is what it is, and I'm not always at my best, you know? Great quote by Somerset Mom is, only a mediocre person is always at their best, you know? <laughs> You know, and, and so part of it is is having the courage to speak early on what you can do and not do. Mm-hmm. And the other part is to communicate on a regular basis, good, bad, and indifferent, so that people that you can make changes in your in your area. So part of the, what I wrote that in the name that uh, article or that blog was that people blame the the situation for the crises and not for their lack of preparation the crisis we've seen this in the whole corona 19 right mm-hmm. look look what it did in in um uh, the uh, taiwan taiwan was as closest to china right and what they did was they were prepared ahead of time with all uh, they had a plan together for a pandemic and had all the materials and things like that and they've had i think like 500 deaths we've had a hundred thousand yeah. in america Jeez. And and so I, I listened to that. It was on TV the other day. I listened to that. They they didn't predict that the pandemic was going to happen, but they said we better be ready for it when it yeah. does. Yeah. And they were. And you know, the crisis was not so much a pandemic; it was a lack of preparation for it. Yeah, I I, I like that, and I think that the, use that as a kind of an analogy for people as well. I, just even one of my clients this morning saying to them that you know, they, they're dealing with grief in a particular thing and they're sort of kind of down the road with it where it's, you know, it, it sort of will be okay, then it crops up and it'll be okay, it crops up with it. And saying to them that rather than sort of judging yourself or, or trying to, you know, deal with it when it comes is, you know, you know, using the emotional part of your brain, you know, or the logical part of your brain, you know, logically it's this, but your emotional brain's going to take over. So, so that's just the reality and we can't fight it. So actually, rather than hoping that these things don't show up is being prepared that you are going to have the moment in a few weeks time in a month or whatever you're going to have that moment and how do we prepare for it prepare for it that it's going to still be difficult it's still going to be hard but create a level of certainty that actually this is how i'm going to best deal with it ahead of time now does it mean that it's you're then painless no no way shape or form but just building confidence that you're going to have ways to cope in the future gives you confidence in the present i think and i think the taiwan example is a perfect example actually of just being prepared for the crises and i, I, I can certainly see that uh, for businesses and individuals um is is really being you know preparation is key and i think and i was a i was a footballer and i always remember one of the coaches saying you know fail uh, fail to prepare prepare to fail Right. And and right. that's and that's always the case. So uh, I totally agree with you. Um, I just want to move on to a slight tangent, which is to talk about. I know you're a member of the Ashland Centre of Nonviolence, yeah. and the work. You know, having looked through the the work is is really interesting, and I, I kind of wanted to talk to you in terms of 
why do you, you know, I've got my own answer to this question, my own opinion on this question. I just want to hear what yours is, which is why do you think violence remains the means of expression for some people? And I've got my own thoughts on that, but I'm just curious as to why you got involved and, and what your answer to that is. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, I, I think uh, there's probably people who can better answer that question than me, but um, I think when people feel helpless, and sometimes people don't have the ability to, to, to communicate, mm -hmm. speak, you know, they, they take violence, you know. I, I've heard that before where the, that uh, when a person has the inability, even have good verbal skills and things like that, uh, it has to come out in some way, you know, and, and it might come out in violence and, and the, or a sense of hopelessness. You know, the, the organization I'm working with, uh, and I'm also a member of, um, it started up with, as a kind of protest to the Iraqi war. Mm. And, and uh, you know, typical protest. And then, uh, and they were professors, uh, community members at Ashland, which is a small city uh, in Ohio, where the college is. And um, so I got to know them through some work. I was doing work, uh, gratis work with a dental clinic in Ashland. And uh, the wife was the president of that and her husband, uh, they were both professors. And he was uh, started up uh, leading the, um, uh, after this, this uh, protest against the Iraqi war, they said, well, what are, what are we gonna do about this, you know? And so they decided, they formed this organization and it grew into much more than an anti-war thing. It dealt with violence in the schools and bullying, mediation in families and things like that. And they would bring in major speakers and things like that. And, and so I think what I've learned from them, matter of fact, I'm, I'm working with them now virtually on a strategy uh, for the next few years, is realizing you know, what, what is their role in, and what is nonviolence. And it's, it, it is really much broader than just not physically beating up people things like yeah, that yeah. Well, and so if i asked you the question to sort of i guess put you on the spot a little bit if i was to ask you what is non-violence where we went from a point of view that if people could can uh, broaden their horizon in terms of what people are you know when people mention non-violence i think you're absolutely right most people think it's just okay well just don't be violent um, if we try to kind of broad help people broaden what that can actually look like, not in terms of this is what people should do necessarily, because I'm sure it's a very complicated situation. But but when you think of nonviolence and broadening that out in terms of what the possibilities could be, what does what does that look like to you, Michael? Yeah, well, it, part of it is is maybe tra actually I had a conversation with a whole group of people uh, this past week, Zoom, educational piece, and uh, uh, and and. And they had, they really got into this conversation very much because these are people who were really uh, focused uh, on nonviolence, but also the, the different faces of nonviolence. Uh, there's peace, mm. social justice, dignity of people. These are the kind of the, the positive qualities that drive out violence. And so I, I'm not even sure if the word nonviolence is always the best one, uh, yeah, but, but it, it's a start. And so what can we do, to me, it's what can we do to create a better world? Yeah. You know? And you. the yeah. world starts in my family, in my relationships, in my community. <laughs> and of course it spreads out from there. And uh, 
the um, you know the, the Gandhi quote is you know to, to be the change that you want to see in the world. Mm -hmm. And what I admire about this organization, because I started working with them, I was invited to work with them, and uh, I've done strategic planning for them and helping them with things. Was to uh, so they're into helping people with conflict resolution and mediation and and building healthy communities and things like that. To me. Uh, what we found in our discussion last week was people had different views of that, and they, but they all kind of molded together, you know, into some overall principles of human dignity mm -hmm. and fairness and justice, you know. And I, I know those are fairly broad words, but uh, no, I, I, but uh, I, but they're more specific than nonviolence, and and I and I I, I sort of agree with you in terms of nonviolence can almost. Uh, it, it's sort of just it's kind of the opposite and it doesn't it doesn't really explain it doesn't really provide that much does it non-violence yeah. and so no i i think when you talk about dignity and, and justice and the, and the various forms of non-violence i think that's i think that's really good to hear because people can sort of nod along and go yeah that you're right there's there's it's sort of part, part bit more of the why when we do that okay well why why be non-violent and actually which of those categories does a particular situational incident or uh, whatever fit into so uh, i think that certainly helps people come almost um break it down in their minds for them a little bit it's, it's interesting the first time i worked with them on strategy about five or six years ago one of the initiatives that came out was uh to have peace scholars mm -hmm. an internship for for students which i like that word and so they had so now there's a group of students in this university that are peace scholars mm -hmm. you know and and doing things uh, uh to really promote peace, you know, uh, and and I, I really like that term. It's much better than nonviolent scholars, mm -hmm. scholars, you know. <laughs> and they're doing some wonderful things, and, and they're teaching these young people, you know, letting them be involved with with things, and really understanding the broader view of of, of peace uh, and social justice. And mm -hmm. I, I really admire it, and I love working with them just because it's great work with people who are are doing things that's going to better the world, you know. Absolutely, so. absolutely. And uh, so, so thank you for sharing and, and thank, well, firstly, thank you for being a part of that work. Um, and, and, and obviously it's a, a very uh, noble cause as well. So thank you for sharing the, the insights of that. And before we sort of think about wrapping up and I, I really want people to be aware of where they can get your book and just, it's just some of the, so the many things I've written down personally for myself to take away in terms of both self-management and, and understanding leadership is, been really useful for me so thank you for that michael um before we get into where people can uh, grab your book is that i asked you beforehand before we start this conversation you know part of what, what's writing the book about and you said you know i don't need to do it for a, a business point of view anymore or, or anything like that and it's you know it's really collating or collecting your experience but it's it's i guess how you you, you talked about legacy but really how you're leaving a footprint with people or footsteps for other people to follow um which is always a really nice thing to hear when people have that kind of mindset rather than what does this do for you know what does it do for me is what what can i leave for leave for other people so i want to ask you i had someone on a few weeks ago they talked about leaving a footprint so i asked them the question do you feel you have left a footprint so far now you didn't use the word footprint but if i asked you in terms of legacy and everything else what you've hoping to leave you know what you've hoped to leave behind what you're hoping to leave behind um what 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 is the main thing for you that you want to leave as a legacy to other people and, and do you feel you've been able to leave leave some footprints so far 
Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, you know, to me, I'm at the point in my life, I've, I'm in good health. I, I, I've got great friends and good family and, and a lot of things to be thankful for. And, um, and I'm finding now my, I, I was a consultant. I was kind of an action person getting things done and, and all the examples we've talked about. But I'm finding now that I, I really want to leave something of value that, that will outlive me, mm. you know? And, and not in an ego, yeah, type, yeah, yeah, but a healthy ego, yeah, you know? yeah. And and I've I've I have to say, and it, it might sound kind of cocky, but I I wrote this book, and I actually read it, you know, <laughs> after I wrote it, and, and not that there's not always some changes and things like yeah. that, but I and I had to say, Michael, this is a good book. Mm. It's worth people reading, and. And I had to self-publish. I had some had some people trying to get me in some big publishers, and I even some great writers. And I appreciate that. But that's the, the good part about maybe self-publishing. I I got to write down what I need to write down, you know. Yeah. And and I'm working now to, to kind of get it out. Um, and so I think the, the the legacy is that it it goes beyond. It doesn't even have to have my name attached to it. When people take ownership of it and even change the words and change the names of the tools. When I, when my clients do that, I think that's great because that means they own it. So I want people to to have an impact on their life. And the last part of my career, my last ten years of of my my regular career, <laughs> I'm in my last chapter thing, is I was teaching at a college, a, a faculty for ten years, and I taught MBA stu business students, both MBA and undergraduate students, and I've. Uh, and that has been the most significant thing in my life. Right. I'm still in contact with my students. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I talked to one yesterday, you know, and, and it's great to see how well they're doing. And um, I had this one student and it just came to me as I'm talking and asking, he was from Ghana and uh, had a number of international students and a nice young man. And his goal was to go back to Ghana after he got his MBA. And he wanted to start a, a a, a, a clinic, a medical clinic. So he's going to go in and get his doctor, you know, MD. But then I met him and he, he said, I, I said, I'm going to be a, med a nurse practitioner. I think I, that's all I need to do to get it going back there. And it was such great, but he brought me and two other people, a, which call a, a, a shawl. And it is, um, had my name on it. And it's, okay. it's a Ghana, Ghana robe or something like that, that they give to royalty. Wow. You know, I'm just moved, you know, uh, it was such a, such a gesture, you know, and he did it to me and one other professor and one other person in the university. So he didn't give the whole anything. So it means he, it meant something with him. So mm -hmm. when you, when you see people, my children, uh, my students doing good things, staying connected, um, that's as close as I can get to to uh, living a little bit of my uh, my uh, legacy right now, and uh, the other part is is not being worried whether or not people ever remember your name. Mm -hmm. You know, that's kind of ego, but but to doing something that really counts, and I think that's the part that uh, um, I, I want to have. I, I did something that might sound kind of morbid, but my friend who who uh, uh, Nonviolence group. He brought me in, uh, husband wife team. I loved them both, and he he passed away a few years ago, about three years ago. 
and he got buried by a natural burial. And I said, of course, that's what he's going to do, you know. <laughs> and, and so I decided to write out my passing plans, you know, you know, and, and we're not morbid at all, you know, in, in terms of that. And I'm also doing something. I'm writing something now. Probably won't get published. It wasn't right to be published. I'm writing stories to my grandchildren because I realize they know me as grandpa and my children. And I'm, I'm, I'm writing stories. And every story is about somebody who has made an impact in my life. You know, awesome. and I and I'm I'm going to share it with them, and it'll never end. But I'm going to starting to type it up to get to my children to look at, and and I read these stories, and I'm so moved by the wisdom and the of these so many people I've met, and so they they pay forward with me, and so uh, it's my job to pay forward with them. So uh, that's what I I want to. <laughs> to end my legacy to be and hopefully some of it's coming through now and i when it comes to your you know the for example the Ghanaian student that you mentioned i'm, I'm not i've only spoken to you for an hour michael but I, i'm not surprised you received that sort of gesture because um i i i've genuinely have felt a real warmth that um you know what the, the stuff you've shared is a, a real passion for what you do a genuine passion for what you do and um and providing value for people which you've you've clearly done so i want to say thank you very much for your time michael for people who are really engaged and maybe beyond beyond just hearing it and the your words going into their head but they can feel it a bit more in their heart where can people find your book well it's on amazon mm-hmm. so if they hit amazon and put uh Michael Colburn, and the title of the book is Own Your Job, mm-hmm. Five Tools for Self-Management in the Workplace. Mm-hmm. So if they just hit Amazon with that, they'll probably find that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, uh, and I checked it out myself, and I could actually find myself on there. Um, then the other one is I have a website, uh, I think you've looked at, yep. uh, www.michaelcolburn, small letters, M I C H A E L C O L B U R N, PhD uh, dot com. Uh, and in there, there's, they can go information about the book. I have a number of blogs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to be adding some things to um, people, particularly who buy the digital copy of the book. All the handouts in the book is going to be on the website. So oh, people great. can print. Yeah, yeah, great. And, and I'm going to start putting on some videos. You haven't seen any videos yet. I just no. produced my first video a couple of weeks ago with my, my friend who I could have never done alone. Mm-hmm. And I put it maybe like 15 minute videos about various aspects of self-management. Maybe they just, awesome. sometimes people just need to see it. And, you know, people, we learn different ways, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, see that so i want my website uh and there's no special code to that anybody can look at it you know and and it, uh i love to sell some books a lot of my friends who i think are good they sell their books and they're good books like gleb i, I have his books yeah. uh, to build their business i'm almost i want to build use my business to sell my books you know? <laughs> yeah. So yeah. i'm doing workshops because i think uh i don't want to go back to the cons- uh, full-time yeah. consulting yeah. Business, but i want to help people with their part of the business, you know, and yeah. uh, that, that gives me great uh, uh, pleasure. Yeah. So, and, and just on that, so how lot, and just, just so I can get an idea in terms of how much is going into that book. So how many years were you, have you been consulting or uh, working with uh, businesses and high performers and coaching? Well, how, how many years are we talking about? Over 30? Over 30. Okay. You so know? If, you, if you've enjoyed a, an hour's 
conversation with Michael, if you want 30 years worth of experience wrapped up into one, then um, definitely have a look at his book. But Michael, I just want to say thank you very, very much for your time and um, hopefully get to speak to you again in the future. I would, I would love that. This has been uh, quite lovely, David. Great.